Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. Welcome to BC Radio Live for Wednesday, March 12th. Tonight on the show, a trio of writers, one at a time. We'll talk with Christopher Shiort, author of Strange Brew, Eric Clapton, and the British Blues Boom. We will also speak with Dominic Priore, author of Riot on Sunset Strip, Rock and Roll's Last Stand in Hollywood. First, we'll talk with E.A. Vanderveer, author of Facebook, The Missing Manual. In the summer of love, the British blues, with a visit to one of the most popular websites around, it is going to be a fun night. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hi, Eric. Hello, Philip. How are you? I am great. Almost adjusted to the time change. Yeah, it's taken me a while. And we, we hear from Lisa, too, that she's been having issues. That's right. I my hour back. <laughs> I haven't. I, yeah, I, I haven't really done very well. And we had that. I had the Rock Hall um, induction, uh, essentially live blogging. They're still calling it webcasting, but it's just sitting there at the Rock Hall, looking up at the big screen and describing what I see, plus what's going on in the room, which is rarely interesting. And so uh, Don and I went to that, and, and we were up really late, and that made it just even worse. But it was really fun. It was the most fun in, in the several years that we've had there. I seem to celebrate losing an hour every year by staying up far too late myself and then kick myself for the following week. Uh, Lisa McKay is the executive editor of BC Magazine, and it is good, as always, to have you on the show, Lisa. Well, it's nice to be here, as always. <laughs> well, we do have uh, three guests tonight, so we should probably jump right in. Uh, E.A. Vanderveer has written 14 computer books covering topics from Microsoft Excel to XML. Uh, her work has appeared in dozens of online and print publications, and she is here tonight on BC Radio Live to talk about her latest book, Facebook, The Missing Manual. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Emily. And uh, I guess we can start off by saying that uh, E.A. Vanderveer is the pen name of Emily Moore. Thank you. So welcome having, to the show. Thank you for having me. If I if I sound a little froggy, um, I apologize. I'm getting over a cold, but I'll do my best. Oh, we're always getting over something. You sound fine. <laughs> How do you feel? You know, I'm feeling better. Good. <clears throat> well, I'm sorry you have had that. First of all, it's a great book. Uh, I don't think Philip or Lisa have the the pleasure of looking through it, but I, I will certainly welcome their their questions because um, you know I'm a I'm probably a good person to ask some of the questions here because I am a Facebook user. I'm, I'm actually the, kind of the person you describe at the beginning. And it, it's excellent, by the way. I, I, I'm always beating around the bush. It's really good. I mean, I, I looked you. through the whole book, and it really did um, give me a better sense of why I should and how I can use the fact that I belong to this thing. Here, let me explain my situation, which is I think it's similar but not identical, of course, to to fill up. Lisa, are you a Facebook member? I'm not a Facebook member. Okay. Well, what happened to me is this. I'm I'm the, you know, sort of titular head of blog critics. My name's all over the site. My, you know, it's easy to connect contact me. 
we have this huge, huge, huge email database that's everything from uh, PR people, you know, people providing review material, plus all of my business contacts over the years. I've been a writer and a this and a that, and then the involved with music and just a little bit of everything, media. And so I had a, a, a big list to begin with. So I started hearing from people, and uh, you know, it, it appeared to be a, a joint kind of thing, saying, hey, join Facebook. So I ignored it for a while because I think at that time when I first heard it, it was first received messages, it was still, I think it was still college only, or at least it had, it had only recently changed. And, you know, I get all these invitations all the time because just, it's just because I'm on a bunch of lists is, is what it comes down to. And, and so um, I tend to ignore them because I, I'm dealing with huge blocks of email all the time Anyway, we have 2,500 members of blog critics, writers, so we send out messages to them. Uh, we have a smaller group of, of about 1,000 who belong to the Writers Yahoo group. We have yet another group that's about 20, and that's the editors group, uh, another Yahoo group for our editors. We have a smaller still group that's basically the ownership of the site. That's four or five people. And, I mean, I'm dealing with that all the time. And so it just occurs to me, the absolutely last thing on earth I need is a social networking site. Anyway, I finally joined up because someone who, uh, who I didn't want to offend asked me to join. So I signed up. And, I mean, it's rarely a day goes by that I don't get a friend request. And, and basically, I just always say, sure, you know, yeah, why not? And I get invited to join groups, and I go, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, unless it's just something I absolutely know I won't have any interest or won't be participating in at all. But, I mean, I belong to everything from some sort of sin sex club that meets in London monthly uh, to, uh, you know, uh, uh, babies. I don't have babies anymore, but... Uh, Youngest I have is a four-year-old. Uh, but, you know, I just join these things and, and, and what the heck. But I, it's all passive. See, I've never done anything. I've never sent out a message to anyone. Uh, I mean, I will respond if someone asks me to do something. I get all these weird vampire this and zombie this and poke me this and do this and do that. And I, most of it I just don't get. So that's me. So maybe walking me through what I can and should be doing, and how, how I can make use of this might be a good object lesson. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think there are a lot of people in your boat. One of the things I harp on in the book, I think probably the first chapter is, um, if you don't have a good reason for getting on it, I suggest you might not want to. It's a big time suck. Um, the numbers are that every, for every um, registered member um, is spending about 20 minutes a day on the site. So that means there are some people, obviously some people are going to sign up and then never use it again. So a lot of people are spending huge amounts of time on this site. And a lot of them, I think, are in the boat of, they are, they're, they're um, stalking vampires and throwing sheep at each other and poking each other. And I think that's Super fun poking. for a while, but if you really want to get any usefulness out of this site, I think you've got to approach it with, what do I want to get out of this? Is, am I doing this to connect with people that I already work with or already am in some sort of a group with? Am I doing this so that I can look up old boyfriends? You know, really, am I looking for this, you know, just to network to get another job or get a better job? I think if you've got a, um, a very specific purpose before you even register for the site, you're going to get a lot more out of it and spend a lot less time, you know, kind of uh, spinning your wheels. It, based on what I just said, are there functions that you think I should be using? 
that I would benefit from? It, it sounds like you're using it. I think of that more as the MySpace model where people would get on and they weren't sure why they were on and they weren't sure what they wanted to do with it, but they would just go there and then they would like collect friends. Um, I don't know that that is a useful way of, of using the site. Um, I think what I would suggest is to figure out if you wanted to meet some people in real life. For example, if you're, you know, whatever interest you have or maybe even an industry thing and either create a group for that or join a group from that and take it from there. Because I think ultimately the point of Facebook, the real usefulness is that it's going to get people together face-to-face. You know, as you said, there's a million different ways we can email each other. There's a million different places that we can go and put up a free blog. So the usefulness of this is as kind of a kind of a springboard to get people together. Okay, Philip, how do you use it? I know you belonged, you joined right around when I did. I think. Yeah, I think right around the same time, and I've got you know, I don't know, a hundred, I don't know, a lot of friends anyway. Um, I have to say, for a while, I, I looked at a couple of groups. I, I was quite addicted to Scrabulous and spending far more than 20 minutes a day there. Um, but I, I finally found that over time, what interested me was the status. I really enjoyed communicating with groups of people via that status and uh, tracking what all of my friends were doing via that status. So I have to say, lately, I, I haven't logged in often. I've switched over to uh, Twitter, which is nothing but status. So Yeah, um, status is addictive. I was shocked by that. Oh, it's crazy addictive. Like I just I can't imagine going somewhere or at least, you know, without updating my status. Everybody apparently has to know that I'm, you know, eating dinner here or or reading this or watching that. Well, you know, I, I think of it as kind of like a, a the fast food of communication. I mean, we're we're all on this breakneck speed and this is like this is like an electronic bumper sticker. It's like, here I am. Here's what I'm doing now. And it, it is, for me, I, you know, I thought all this when I started researching the book. I thought, oh, man, here's a site that I'm going to research, and I'm going to find out that it's really not useful or really not compelling. And I found that that status hooked me right away, and I'm so not the kind of person to waste any time on anything. It was just, There was just something about it, you know, finding out that somebody was going on vacation or was sick or something, and it's just instantaneous. And then for me it led to a lot of, you know, phone calls. It's like, hey, ma'am, you know, what's up? You know, you find that little one-liner, but then I would always follow it up. Well, not always if it was a stupid status, but you know, it was it was actually useful information. Yeah, I I mean, the other thing I guess I like is that I I have a, a bunch of friends who don't live near me. I'm not likely to to hook up with them anytime soon because they're in another state or another country or you know halfway around the world. And I I guess it was kind of you know they aren't so close of friends that I'm I'm likely to hear from them on the phone on a weekly basis or even catch an email from them for medium-sized life events. But uh, by keeping track of them on Facebook, I actually you know can can stay involved in these casual friends' lives a little little better. Well, let's talk about the book itself, which which like I say, it's excellent. First of all, we should mention that that it is part of the O'Reilly uh, Pogue Press missing manual series and I, I believe you've written several others in that series, right? Yeah, I've written a few for for this um for this line and then a bunch of others for other other folks. One of the things I really liked about it or kind of a hook that that helped me get through it, I I uh you know, basically skimmed but but stopped and read quite a bit was you used yourself uh, as an example. Why why don't you walk us through how do you use uh Facebook? What do you actually do? Um, I know. Is that your daughter who's in there? Yes, I She's packed the cute. book with pictures of my photogenic daughter. <laughs> She's very cute. <laughs> Thank you. Is, is she still that young? She is. Some of them are a little bit older, but but yeah, and you know, obviously that that has to do with um, copyright as well. You know, in books as on Facebook, you know, you have to own the rights to stuff. So, 
I own the rights to those pictures. <laughs> well, why don't you I, – I think that works real well as far as in the book, the fact that you used yourself as, you know, in, in your usage of Facebook as an example. Could you, could you walk us through that just to give people a feel for what you do with it? Absolutely. Um, I actually did a test case on this to see whether um, – you know the, the conventional wisdom is that if you if you use things like social networks like um, Facebook, that you will end up this pathetic little hermit, you know, tapping out your life story at one in the morning, you know, no, but never actually interacting with another human being. So what I did was I tried to get on and um, start a group that was going to be local, that I would actually meet human beings. And I thought this would accomplish a couple things. One, it would test whether or not people trusted each other enough on these sites to actually exchange more than statuses. And another thing was I was curious what people's reactions would be if I invited somebody to Facebook. Um, I started a mother's group, and I thought this is a group of people who are going to be more security conscious and privacy conscious than most, and you know, not to stereotype, but maybe not won't have a really deep background in you know, social networking sites. So I wanted to see what would happen. And it ended up really um, surprising the heck out of me. Um, people took to the site. They got on fairly quickly. Um, one thing that they didn't, you know, to a person understand was the um, security settings of Facebook, unfortunately. I mean, people were very comfortable not putting a whole lot of stuff up, especially, you know, about their kids and stuff. And obviously nobody's going to put up, you know, like their address or, you know, credit card number or anything. But what I found interesting, too, is that most people didn't know how to keep other people from seeing their stuff. They just assumed it was all private you know, until I said, uh, actually, <laughs> it's the other way around. And it's, oh, oh, oh. But I found that to be a really useful tool to attract new people to the group. Um, I've actually met some friends, you know, face-to-face -face friends through it that way. Interesting. Um, what led to the writing of the book in the first place? Um, I've had a... Um, relationship with O'Reilly for a while. My editor tossed the idea around, and I just snapped on it. You know, Facebook is, is adding members at something like a quarter of a million a day. And, of course, there's MySpace, which is still kind of dwarfing Facebook. Um, and I thought, there's, there's a story here. I mean, it's not only just, you know, here's how you do this site, but the fact that this many people are so hungry for connection that they're willing to, like, tell the whole world their religious, you know, and political and sexual preferences just fascinates me. It is interesting. How would you compare Facebook to MySpace? Um, I think of I think of MySpace as kind of or Facebook rather as kind of MySpace for grown-ups. Um, Facebook <laughs> is trying to orient itself towards the 35 plus crowd, and so the kinds of things that they allow and disallow, um, they don't allow you to customize customize your profile um, the way you can in MySpace. They don't allow you know, if they find out that you're being profane or, you know, putting up nudie pictures, whatever, they'll, they promise they'll take them down. They're just trying to create um, a little seemingly safer space, I think, than MySpace. And the problem with that, of course, is this is still the Internet. There is no such thing as keeping your, you know, your information safe. And so I think in a way that that's kind of cultivated a, um, you know, it goes on in Facebook, stays in Facebook kind of attitude, which is totally wrong. 
Can you explain the uh, – I, I, I never exactly grasped. What was the big flap with, with them using um, some sort of data for some sort of uh, marketing or advertising purpose? Uh, what was that? And then it was retracted quickly soon thereafter because um, there was a near riot in, in cyberspace. There have been a couple of riots. Um, Facebook members are, are a riotous bunch apparently. <laughs> um, I think you're referring to Beacon. Yes. Okay, that was a few months ago. Yes. What they were, what they did was they made um, deals with some websites that had nothing to do with Facebook, um, but they made a deal with them so that if, say, I went to a site and bought a movie, um, all of a sudden all my friends would get this message that said, well, you know, geez, Emily just rented Robocop. Would you like to rent it or maybe buy your own copy? So it was people were doing things that were outside of the confines of Facebook, and all of a sudden, all the friends knew about them. Well, of course, you know, there are things you want to do that are maybe, you know, what if it wasn't RoboCop? Maybe it was, you know, something unmentionable. And, you know, suddenly all your friends, including your boss, who you, you know, befriended just so that, you know, you wouldn't have to feel awkward, knows what kinds of movies you like to, you know, to watch. So there was a huge hue and cry, and they backpedaled. Um, the fact is that the the technology, that technology is not going to go away. That is, there's a ton of money in that. Um, so officially, they're backpedaling, they're rethinking, they're going to roll it out, reconsider, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't imagine that that's not going to resurface at some point. But, you, you know, uh, it, it seems clear that that kind of social data and all these, as you said, you know, intimate, involved, detailed descriptions that, that all these members are putting in, I mean, you would think that's a marketer's dream. Oh, it is. It is. Facebook is valued at $15 billion, and I don't know that it's um, paying off to that tune yet. At least that's that's the la- latest word is, is their, their you know, revenues aren't, aren't matching that just yet. But, yeah, that is. This is the holy grail for marketers. Now, the weird part about this is nothing, nobody's vetting anything. I can put down anything. The picture I have of me may or may not be me. N- anything that I put up there may or not be right. Nobody's, you know, checking up on me. Um, so you can argue on one, you know, hand, you know, how useful is that information if it may or may not even you know, have anything to do with me. But you know, that's kind of like when you go to the pet store and they ask for your zip code too. You can lie about that. So I, I think people are still marketers are still viewing this with um, rapt attention. You know, what they're trying to do is monetize the relationships between people. You know, and so there, there are people who think that that's a terrific thing, and there are people who are just horrified by the very prospect. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I hadn't really thought of it quite that starkly. But, yeah, I mean, that does sound pretty manipulative, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what they say is that they're taking the word-of-mouth paradigm and they're just ratcheting it up. I mean, if I tell you, oh, man, you know, I went to this restaurant. It's fantastic, dude. You've got to check it out. Well, you know, in, in a way, I'm sort of marketing that to you, but that's because I did it and I thought you might like it. And what they're doing is using that relationship to hawk the fact that I went to some restaurant or bought something. So, yeah, it's kind of inserting inserting the man into the process. What do you think, um, you've mentioned the, the privacy issue and that people are often kind of have the mirror image view of, of what the reality is. What, what should people, what are the key things that people should know about their privacy settings and how to deal with that? The first thing they need to know is they need to go immediately the second that they um, register for the site and click the little privacy link that's on the top of the of the site and ratchet down their settings. And then they can always open them back up again, but by default, people can see your stuff. And if you don't want that, 
immediately go, and I don't think most people do, immediately go there and, and just kind of ratchet it down. And then you can I, I certainly the don't. I think I, I'm not quite a teenager willing to, to share my every innermost secret, but, uh, you know, I, I spent a long time coming up with my list of favorite music and, and favorite TV shows and favorite movies, and I don't, I don't mind them, you know, being seen. Yeah, I, I haven't I bothered. With... Every time I go in there, it says, um, Eric, you've only filled out 40% of your profile, you slime, <laughs> you scum, <laughs> you wiener. You're only 40% here. Well, that's probably about how much I'm committed to it. You know, I'm, I'm about 40% in the door, I guess. Well, uh, anything no. that required a lot of effort, I just haven't done yet. <laughs> well, they're trying to get that payment, you know. I mean, people say that using the site is free, but I always say, well, you're not paying with money, but you're you're paying with your private information. So, you know, you only paid 40% of your bill. <laughs> right, and your time. I'm, yeah. I'm a slacker uh, from the time end, too, because all I do, like I said, all I do is go in and say, yep, you can be my friend. <laughs> you, too, can be my friend. And uh, Should I be inviting people? Um, you know, I, I, when I get requests like that, I I have to tell you, I have so little time in the day that I usually ash can them. You know, so if you were, I think I think it depends on 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 <laughs> whether these people are really your friends or not. I mean, if you're going to invite them and just okay, come here and you know log on every once in a while, and you know, I don't know that that is useful. If you're seeing a lot of value in the site and you're wanting somebody to kind of you know come on over, kind of a thing, I think that's probably. Um, Legit, but I can't tell you how many requests I get for, you know, install this, you know, vampire slasher thing, you know, right. or grow a flower, you know, application. It's like, oh, God, I wish I had time to sit around and do this all day, but I don't. The first few applications, I just, I didn't even understand how to accept or reject, so I ended up accepting them. And then after that, I just thought, no, because I, I don't need a bunch of applications, because all of a sudden all these vampires are coming after me and this and that. And I, I, man, I thought this was the one that's supposed to be all mature and everything. You know, <laughs> well, you know these are all third-party developers, and, and the good part of that is there's supposed to be all this innovation. The bad part is Facebook doesn't, you know, man, if they take your data or hack in, you know, oh, well, it's a third party. And there have been social worms um, discovered in some of those. What What surprised me was how many people love those things. I mean, to me, that's kind of a complete time waster, and people are going to start developing. I think they're starting to develop now. Things are actually useful. But I would say 95% of those apps still are just complete, you know, rate your friends kind of a thing, and, and they're they're kind of useless. But people are, you know, it's cotton candy. You know, people might not have a lot of substance, but people are liking it. Well, it is clear that they do. It's an amazing thing. Um, as always, well, time unfortunately, let me let me cut in and say, uh, unfortunately, it's it's a, about the time to move on. We do have uh, two other writers that we'd love to talk to tonight. Uh, but Emily, it has been great. I'm sorry, EA. <laughs> it has been great <laughs> to talk to you tonight. And uh, I want to get my hands now on a copy of Facebook, The Missing Manual. And I have to say that in, in 20 minutes, you've managed to resurrect my interest in Facebook. I, I loaded up my account uh, just you know, in anticipation of this show. And uh, here I am. I'm, I just added another friend. I wrote on someone's wall. I poked <laughs> about five people. And ah, oh, darn it, here goes another 20 minutes a day. <laughs> I'm glad I could perform that useful community service for you. <laughs> yeah, way to go. And we hope you feel better, too. Thanks for, Thank for coming on in the midst of not feeling all that great. But it really is a great book because I've I've been, um, you know, somewhat flippant about all this as far as how I use it and everything. But, uh, you know, in going through the book, it, it, it's really clear. It, all the sta- uh, 
you know, the steps to, to do this and do that. You, you have all kinds of great pictures, um, screen grabs, all that kind of thing. It couldn't be more clear. Even a just 40 percenter like me can now use it. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm taking that as a huge compliment. Well, a, a, it was meant that way. So thanks very much, and we hope you feel better, and, uh, and good luck with the continued writing, because obviously you're good at it. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Facebook, The Missing Manual, was published uh, earlier this year, just a couple months ago, and it is available right now. You'll find a link to it at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Now, we do have two other guests, and we have two people on the line, and uh, I don't know which is which. So let's Well, Christopher is calling from Norway, literally. So that, yeah. that should show up one way or another. Hmm. Probably using Skype or something. So now we have three. We'll figure it out. Anyway, the, uh, the most provocative and pleasurable of this year's uh, Memorial to the Summer of Love is Riot on Sunset Strip. Exactly, last year. Last year's, yes, right. <laughs> right on Sunset Trip, Rock and Roll's Last Stand in Hollywood. The author of that book, Dominic Priori, is a writer and television producer who specializes in music and pop culture. He has also written Smile, the story of Brian Wilson's lost masterpiece, and co-written Beatsville, and he was also the main writer on several AMC rock documentaries. It is a pleasure to welcome to BC Radio Live, and let's, let's hope I'm doing that, uh, Dominic Priore. Is this Dominic? No, this is Christopher. I'm yeah, I thought Christopher oh. was next, but I, I didn't want to interrupt that really fine introduction you made of <laughs> well, Dominic. Well, let's, let's, let's rearrange things. I'm sorry, Dominic. <laughs> but is, is Dominic on the line there? Christopher, how are you? I'm just fine. I'm far away from you, but I'm just fine. You are. Well, you sound like you're right around the corner, and you sound like all my relatives, all my Norwegian relatives. <laughs> yes. Well, probably... let's, let's just say then, Christopher Short is the author of Strange Brew, Eric Clapton, and the British Blues Boom. Uh, he's a rock historian who also collaborated with Doug Hinman on the acclaimed chronology of Jeff Beck's career titled Jeff's Book. He is calling us, as we've heard already, from Oslo, Norway. Yes. We're very glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I have still never been to Norway. I'm the only one in my whole family. My two older kids have been to Norway. My son's been to Norway twice now, and he's spent a lot of time there and hanging out with the relatives and being all Norwegian and everything. Uh, he went to – there's an island, and they have a um, – a festival each year where they they live Viking style for the weekend. Ah, yeah, exactly. I know about that. Yes, sure. Yeah, I've well, never he, been there, but I know about it. Yes, he he went. My son's a archaeology major, and ah, and great. and Viking the Viking past is his greatest interest of all. So he was just in heaven over ah. there. He was there last summer, and yeah, he did the the camping out and the, all the rituals and wore all the heavy. Uh, 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 what was he wearing? Skins, I guess? And yes, I I'm, guess so, yes. And he was drinking the drink. He's not 21. I can't believe it. But uh, he, he is <laughs> Sounds <20. good. laughs> So, yeah, he had a great time. I still haven't been there yet, even though I am 79% Norwegian. Yes, you're more Norwegian than, than American then. I'm, well, my blood, yes, although I've, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm born and raised in America. My my uh, both of my paternal grandparents, my father's parents, were both born in Norway. Ah. Both my parents are from the U.S. Well, uh, 
as as always, uh, time uh, we don't want to get caught here because um, we, we'll uh, we'll bump into Dominic. But yeah, another great book. But what I was so excited about tonight is all three of these books are just tremendous. We want to say that uh, both Christopher's book and and Dominic's are on Jawbone, which is a only about a year old imprint. It's music books, and I'm telling you, the books are just beautiful. I'm looking at Strange Brew, which is basically it's it's a it's a day to day recap, right, of the British uh, blues explosion. Is that uh, a fair? I mean, I'm looking at all these various dates. Uh, yes, that's not, a fair description. But the idea is to give uh, is to sort of move beyond all the dates, you know, to give the full story. That's the idea. So it's it's on one hand it's a reference work yes but it's also supposed to be my ambition is to be a bit more you know to try to tell the story from using contemporary reviews and interviews that's sort of the key to the book you know yes try to transport the readers back to the time to understand how it was then and not using hindsight which everybody's doing you know I see yeah well I'm looking at it right now and I've I've read uh, several of the dates and anecdotes I. As always, I'm behind on these things. I do really do want to read it carefully all the way through because I mean that's a period that I am real. I, I too am a, uh, uh, I suppose, a music historian, and uh, that's one of my favorite periods. That British blues explosion. So it, it's basically written in the present tense, is what you're. Yes, saying. that's the idea, you know, because that I think that gives it a sense of urgency, you know. It, it's more. More action in the here and now. Sure. Well, I I tend to write about the past in the present tense if I'm writing um, a story. You know, if you're writing a, a anecdotally yes, or, or historical present tense, yes, because it's much more active. I agree. Yes, it is. But uh, before before we get into um, and talking a little more about, more about, it, I just wanted to say that how, how beautiful the book is. There's all kinds of great pictures. Yes, it's uh, it's an oversized book. It's printed on on high quality glossy paper. So it's really a thing of beauty, and uh, uh, if you're interested in that period, and, and it, hey, if you're interested in rock and roll, man, I, I, I just don't see how you can't be interested in that period. Um, you know, with with centered around Eric Clapton and his involvement with uh, Jan, John Mayall's Blues Breakers, and then Cream, and uh, well, why don't you tell us about it, please? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Please explain the book and and how did you how did you come to write this? Ah, uh, this is a lifelong interest, you know. Because I've always been interested in music, and you know, being uh, not a native, not either from the UK or the US, uh, I approached it in a different way. Because when I grew up, I, you know, I bought um, English music papers every week, and that was kind of my introduction to this uh, this whole world. So instead of being uh, disturbed by everything else that was going on outside in the world, I was just zooming in on one thing, and that was the music. And I got, uh, I did two things. I did buy these papers every week, and I bought records. You know, when I read about it in the papers. So that's what I did. That's how I came to like the music, and also all become intensely interested in the musicians behind the music. And this period that I described, the years from 1965 until 1970, I think they were extremely creative, because there was, in in one way, there was much pressure. At the same time, there wasn't any pressure in the sense that, you know, nobody had any long-distance goal, you know. Nobody thought that they would be playing after they turned 30 or being 30, that was old age. So it was, a, it was sort of driven by this very youthful energy, I think, which made all this amazing music. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, so kind of your three central heroes, guitar heroes, this is very much a guitar-driven period. Yes, um, guitar-driven period, yes. Y- your, your heroes are Eric Clapton, Peter Green, the great Peter Green, who still, I think, is really underappreciated, at least Definitely. in the U.S., mm. who, was, who was the original guitarist and songwriter for Fleetwood Mac, that's still my favorite Fleetwood Mac period. Yes, um, definitely. You know, great, with, great band. with uh, the great instrumentals like Albatross, and then, I mean, what song beats Oh Well? That, that's just an astonishing, that's one of my favorite rock songs of all it's time. very powerful. <laughs> the combination of the up-tempo uh, beginning and then the extended coda where he switches to acoustic guitar. Yes, yeah, amazing. And a recorder, actually. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. The recorder. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah. you know, Peter Green had this, he had also this great voice, you know, which hasn't probably been honored either, I think. He's a great, great singer. I think you're right. Yeah, uh, he's 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 better known than he was. There was a period where after he kind of just disappeared, you know. Where he, he, he wasn't very well known at all, I think, especially in the U.S. But and I think he's had something of a resurgence because he he did kind of come back to music, and I know he's done some recording in the last uh, you know 15 years or so. But um, you know, quality-wise and power-wise, of course, it's not up there with Fleetwood Mac. But I, I think at least his name is a little better known. But he's really an innovative guitarist, and and all of these people, uh, of course, are blues-based. But but think of the staggering, really stylistic differences between Peter Green, Mick Taylor of the Rolling Stones, who, who was really only in the Stones for what? Was it three years? Four, uh, four and a half, to be precise. Four and a half, to be precise. Yeah. And clearly, in my mind anyway, and, and in a lot of people's mind, their peak years. The Day peak, yes, definitely. I don't think there's much question. I don't think it's a coincidence that those were the Stones' peak years. Listen to Get Your Yaya's out. You know, listen to his guitar work. Amazing. Yeah. And then, and then Jeff Beck, of course, who is quite well known, and Clapton. And I mean, my gosh, what a period that that generates. Look at the stylistic differences between them. How would you describe each? And and you know, all being blues based, but they they went in such different directions. Yes, uh, it's uh, they, they all came from the same. Uh, the same background, in a sense, you know, but they uh, each took slightly different courses. So if I should try to do it uh, very uh, short, keep it brief, I would say that uh, Clapton was very intense in a virtuous way, you know. He was very, uh, he used uh, a lot of power in his playing, whereas Peter Green was much more restrained. The paradox was that this restraint actually was very powerful. You know, he used a few notes. He right. It wasn't that uh, he didn't use that, that such cascades of notes that Clapton used to do. And uh, Mick Taylor was an, a, a sort of combination of the two, actually. But he had this very uh, this uh, vibrato, you know, on the guitar, the way he played the guitar, which is quite unique. Nobody has had exactly that kind of touch that he had. But, you know, the, 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 the most amazing thing is that it's it's hard to comprehend today because... In today's world, there's so many gadgets, there's so many tutors, there's so many books, there's so many magazines on guitars you can buy everywhere. You can read how people get the different sounds. But in that time, in 65, when Clapton started out, it, this was complete virgin territory, you know. Nobody has, had done any kind of this stuff. 
And what he did was, you know, he managed to distill what B.B. Uh, King and Freddie King and Arbor King, you know, this blues greats were doing and putting his own mark on it, his own stamp on it. And that's that's totally mind-blowing because this music is still so powerful. If you listen to it today, it's not like it's you had to think that it's okay, it's 40 years old or whatever, and it's not that kind of good. But it's really, really strong, and it's still the benchmark for all guitar players who came afterwards, actually. It's exceptionally fresh. If you listen to a career overview of Clapton, um, that earliest stuff, the the mid '60s stuff, really everything up through Layla is is how I look at it. It's just magical, you know. It's magical, yes. And he had this he had this very unique thing that he he played. So there's a British DJ called John Peel who put it so well. He said that he told stories when he played guitar because what he does, you know, he used sort of the same kind of phrases and the same choice of notes, but still he managed to give each solo and each uh, thing he does with a certain little twist that makes it always interesting to listen to. It never gets boring. Because when, so many other guitar players <laughs> they have a tendency to get very boring. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I'm a guitar player, a lapsed. I've kind of tried to return to it here in the last couple of years after <laughs> way too long break. And so you know, I mean, I at least have uh, something of an appreciation for the for the skills that are involved. But I, the difference for me with Clapton, and, 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 and not just between Clapton and, and other guitarists, but Clapton of that era and, and Clapton for the rest of his life, is that that period prior to, up to and including Layla, it, it sounds to me like, and, and, and from what I've read about him too, I mean, he's he's kind of said the same thing, is that you know his playing during that time it was simply the most important thing in his life, and he felt that that was how he could best live his life through his playing. I mean, it was it was literally sacred to him. Yes, exactly. It was and, sacred. and that period after Layla, when when he was uh, holed up, you know, as a heroin addict for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, I just seemed to destroy. Take something out of him. Something of the fire has never ever been back. No, I wholeheartedly agree. This has been discussed by so many writers and sure. so many people, and that's sort of it's a sore point, I think, with many people too, because uh, he has made uh, good records afterwards or after 1972. But it, sure. I wholeheartedly agree. Nothing compares to the fire in his playing in those early years, which was just out of this world. And inventiveness. And inventiveness. And inventive, definitely. Because um, you know, he he made a whole new school of guitar playing. Clapton was God. I mean, people... That, it wasn't facetious back then when people said that, you know? No, it wasn't. I mean, there was a real reverence in, in, in people's voices. Lisa, you're, you were certainly around in that period, and you're a huge music fan. What, what, what are your thoughts on, on, uh, on, on that era and on uh, that selection of guitarists? That was actually my whole musical coming-of-age era was, you know, happening in the late 60s, and... I was a huge Cream fan, uh, and I listened to all those bands. I listened to the Yardbirds. Uh, I was just chatting with Philip a minute ago in the chat room, and I said my first ever concert was the Rolling Stones. So, and, you know, the Rolling Stones had that real kind of bluesy feel to their music back then that I don't think they have so much of now as they did then. Did you see him with Mick Taylor? 
Uh, no, actually, I saw the Rolling Stones in 1965. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, Bri- Brian Jones was... was Where's the time machine? Still among the living, so a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> I've been lamenting the same thing. I was born too late. That is amazing. Wow. Yeah. I didn't see the Stones till that was later I, I was, 70s. I was 13 years old. It was the first ever concert that I went to. Wow. Yeah. Do you have vivid memories? Um, I actually don't. I mean, God, do you remember anything that happened when you were 13? <laughs> I have sort of a vague memory of it, but uh, no. You know, Interesting. I wish. Um, now, in the book you mentioned there, um, there's a, there was a concert when, when all those guys were together? Yes, that's right, in 1967, I think. But it was more like a coincidence, and it's more... It's, um, it's more like it's a typical thing of the time, you know, because, as we said, it's, it was so intense, you know, and there was a quite small environment. There weren't that many people actually playing this kind of music, and they kept bumping into each other all the time. So, and just a handful of clubs, right? Yes, it was just a handful of clubs. Yes, that's right. But it was uh, still, at the same time, there was a great audience for this, too, because in, the, in England there was bunches of pubs and clubs all over the, the country that uh, care for this kind of music. So it was no problem, you know, playing seven nights a week all over England. So what was the show where they were all together? Uh, that was the National Jazz and Blues Festival in a place called uh, Reading, I think, in 1967, in August 1967. That was a large show where they had all kinds of bands, you know, Yetro Tull and, uh, yes, all the bands. Did they actually play together, or were they just in the same show? No, just in the same show, yes. Uh, well, that was still a hell of a show, huh? I guess so, yes. Now, what, what, the thing I've never quite, you know, had a, uh, come to a satisfying answer on, and uh, maybe there isn't one, but how is it that you think that in that period, how did England, you know, little jolly old England across the, across the big pond, how did they produce such amazing and seminal blues musicians, blues rock, but, you know, certainly fundamentally blues-based musicians, which is, you know, a music style that, that is in many ways alien, you know, to England. You talk about black America, black Southern originally, black Southern America, um, and then, of course, was dispersed as, as uh, the migration northward into the, into the big cities and whatnot, especially of the, of the East. But, uh, you know, still, you're talking about a whole different mindset, a completely different culture. Uh, how is it that England produced such amazing blues musicians and guitarists in, in that short period of time, that, that stand up with, with among the best in all of blues history, blues of any kind? I think that that's a quite complex uh, question and an equally complex answer, actually. I think there's many reasons. But you're right. It's, I think it's, it's still such a big mystery. Why did pimple-faced young 18-year-old or 16-year-old English kids dig you know, blues music from the, the Delta? That's, you know, at the outset, that's quite incredible. But I think one of the reasons was that in, in England they had always had opened, open ears for uh, American music going way back to the, to the trad jazz, which was called uh, Dixieland, you know, the old New Orleans music. That was always right. very popular in England. And at the same time they had a very strong folk music tradition in England. So they, I think 
there was a sort of a convergence between those two, which made a, um, the environment sort of ready for this kind of influx from 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 the U.S. And what happened was, of course, that there was this music was also excellent for dancing. You know, it was very powerful and it was also very exotic. You know, because it they didn't have to. These were people that didn't live in England, of course. I mean, all these this, this blues greats. So it was kind of exotic and foreign, you know, when they came over and visited and toured to England. So I think it's it's not an easy answer. I think this <laughs> uh, will be discussed in years to come, definitely. Well, Christopher, thank you very much for uh, coming on BC Radio Live and talking with us. Yes, it's been a pleasure. I will remind our listeners, uh, Strange Brew, Eric Clapton and the British Blues Boom is the book, and it is available now, published just last year. Uh, you can find a link to it at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Brilliant. And now we can return um, to Dominic. I, I actually, I guess, uh, read through my little introduction of, of Dominic, uh, but uh, his, his current book, his most recent book, is about the summer of love. It's called Riot on Sunset Strip, Rock and Roll's Last Stand in Hollywood. And I hope that this time we do, in fact, have Dominic on the line. Welcome, Dominic. Hello. Hello there. Hello. How you doing? We are exceptionally well. And you? Good. Just sitting around in Southern California. Well, that's a fine place to be. We're still digging out after the, the blizzard of, of of 08 here in Ohio. Even though oh, down, down here in Dallas, I had a very Southern California evening. I, I ate on a patio this evening and enjoying my my Mexican food. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. I am from East Los Angeles, so I appreciate Mexican food. To the as a, <laughs> very good. Are you really from East Los Angeles? Yeah, it's, it's a little town actually uh, next to East Los Angeles called Monterey Park. But sure, East Los Angeles College is in Monterey Park, so that's kind of where I'm from. And and it was a pretty interesting uh, neighborhood to grow up in, and a lot of fun. Being very close, in a way, to a civil rights movement. Uh, the Ch- Chicano movement that they had during the 60s and uh, peaking at the Chicano Moratorium in 1970. I grew up very close to that kind of thing. So uh, it kind of led in one way to things that wound up in my book. Uh, I, you know what? That is so interesting because I was going to mention that in looking through the book, which is really, again, super outstanding, the the pictures and the scholarship and the feel for the place and time, because this is a, a subject that's you know been pretty well covered. Um, I, I love the Barney Hoskins book. I assume you, you read that. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and then just from a lot of different um, verticals, you know, like from the band's point of views, the you know the Doors or the or the Birds or whatever. But uh, what what really stood out for me is you really had a nuanced feel, and you gave a lot more time and and energy to the Mexican American bands than I've really have ever seen before. And Thank you. There has been a few books on Latino rock and roll, uh, but. Uh, you know, uh, Land of a Thousand Dances is, is is one of them actually, and it's a good book. Uh, but uh, actually, I'm working on another book that's called uh, Chicano Power: The Golden Age of East LA Rock and Roll, which is going to be the next thing. <laughs> and so I'm just expanding that. But um, interestingly enough, you know, these guys were making records in their neighborhood and playing lots of gigs in small places, and everybody was a teenager too. And I think the most important part of this for them was 
the visibility they got as Americans. You know, it wasn't like when you were a rock and roll band and people go out and see you and they love your music and you're wearing a, a tie. Um, they weren't. Uh, the public had a, a different perception of Mexican Americans prior to that. You know, there was a lot of real bad stereotypes. And uh, by the end of the decade, you know, these these kids were playing at dances and ties and suits and looking sort of like a Liverpool era Beatles that wound up having their own sort of um, social consciousness and reawakening and, and it led to great things for them like um, education uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Everything just changed. Being treated like people. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, it, what particularly stood out with me and, and looking through the book, it was a, there was a lot of names. You named a lot of bands I really wasn't that familiar with. It. I'm, I'm from L.A. I mean, I'm, I know the area. And in fact, uh, I... I uh, I owned a DJ company, and that, that's what I did in the 80s. And we did parties out in Monterey Park all the time. Wow. I mean, I, and, and around East L.A., we had a lot of, you know, Mexican-American customers. I love that. I love that uh, milieu, shall we say, and familiar with it. But uh, and, and I've done a lot of research earlier than your period here uh, on Richie Valens and, and – uh, I was actually became friends with with Bob Keane of, of Delphi, who signed Richie and produced him um, in, in writing the Encyclopedia of Record Producers. And so, you know, I'm pretty familiar with that. But uh, with that whole general uh, era and, and that, but you, you name a lot of bands I hadn't even heard of. Well, the focus of the book is uh, everything that led up to the Monterey Pop Festival and um, the Sunset Strip and downtown Hollywood. Those two areas being sort of a locus for bands coming from Las Vegas, from Santa Barbara. They'd come up from Orange County, and you know, it was like a magnet. So <clears throat> it was a really creative period because almost of one reason, in a way, the Beatles' immense popularity in 1964. Well, they grabbed the largest market share on television with their appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, and all these kids were just inspired to form bands right away. And um, <clears throat> it just so happened that in Hollywood... Um, all these great old nightclubs that were created during the 30s and 40s, places like Ciro's and the Macambo and the Trocadero, these glamorous places where you see pictures of Clark Gable and Gene Harlow hanging out, you know, by that time those clubs were all closed and were all empty. And so who comes in and swoops in and fills it in? Bob Dylan, the Birds, Frank Zappa, the Doors, the Buffalo Springfield Love. Uh, and it was an incredibly creative scene. And these names that you know now were just garage bands at the time and they all emerged out of this huge vacuum that was there in Hollywood on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you just gave a, a synopsis for the book because we've been kind of talking around it. I, I'm, I got probably too much into the, the esoterica other than, you know, beyond the main the gist of the book. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad you gave that. Why don't we go a little bit more just about the the general parameters of it and and you know what was the impetus to cover this particular period and what did you most get out of it? What what did you learn in in doing all this research and going back and listening to all this music and looking at all these pictures and everything? Well, um, the main impetus would be that in a way you said that it was a period that was covered a lot, but I would say to you this that period has been covered in terms of a San Francisco perspective. Um, when you think of psychedelic music, everything they always show is the Jefferson Airplane or the Grateful Dead. And the reason why that is, is because um, it took that long for um, the scene to mushroom, should we say, to the point where they 
uh, created this thing called the Monterey Pop Festival. Well, it was an event that was organized and uh, centered around Los Angeles artists creating a, a venue for psychedelic music to be seen uh, internationally. I guess it was called the Monterey, Monterey International Pop Festival. And so once that event happened, the media, you know, focused on the Bay Area, which is closer to, you know, Mon Monterey is much closer to San Francisco. And then Rolling Stone magazine started, and then their uh, Bay Area bias, so to speak, um, left Los Angeles out of the story. What really happened was all the clubs in L.A. had been closed down by the end of 1966, and this is the reason why the L.A. scene makers um, decided to do a festival in Monterey. Right. They, they, there, because there were, there were. I mean, the title of your book is "Riot on Sunset Strip," which is, is comes from a film, right? Yeah. But I mean, but there were literally riots. Well, what happened was, uh, I think it was in March of 1965. Uh, Bob Dylan joined the Birds for their debut at Ciro's, uh the newly reopened Ciro's, previously a, a Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. type of club. Uh, and, and those guys were now playing in Las Vegas, and they were for an older generation, I guess. And so now you have Bob Dylan and the Birds in their place. And that um, instigated a whole bunch of new clubs opening in this sort of mod, psychedelic, folk rock style. Um, that on the Sunset last, Strip. On the Sunset Strip, for two years. Um, and in, let's see, May of 1966... One of the bands that came out was, uh, well, Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable featuring the Velvet Underground and Nico. And uh, that was interesting because the Ferris Gallery on La Cienega Boulevard was this great art gallery. And Warhol had done the Campbell Soup Can paintings and debuted them at this Ferris Gallery in L.A. Not a New York event, but an L.A. event. So there was this great interaction between the pop art scene of New York City and the pop art scene of Los Angeles at the time. And when the Velvet Underground came to play at a club called The Trip, um, <laughs> you know, everybody was there. Your, your thespian, your cutting-edge thespians, Dennis Hopper type people, Peter Fonda type people, uh, your artists and all your musicians all came to this one place at one time. And the Velvet Underground show was so radical. It was like the most radical thing any people had seen yet. And the, the police got wind of this, and the city fathers got wind of this, and they started harassing teenagers after that for the next seven months, and to the point where uh, an organization called CAF, Citizens Action for Facts and Freedom, was formed, and they did a sit-in demonstration at one of the threatened nightclubs called Pandora's Box. And the, Cubs, uh, the, the cops came in wielding billy clubs and started beating up kids on cue when the curfew hit 10 p.m. So um, the CAF then formed a, a benefit concert to try to deal with all these problems and try to keep things open and keep things alive. And the CAF Benefit went so well that the organizers of the CAF Benefit did the Monterey Pop Festival next. Oh, I didn't know that connection. That's very interesting. Um, for those who who aren't steeped in this tradition, why don't you name, you know, the real key bands? And I mean, because it is astonishing when you hear who was they were just literally rubbing elbows and and sitting in on each other's sets and and you know this was a, a relatively small area it was a relatively small number of clubs and all these bands were there why don't you name them and, and maybe tell us how do you prioritize them um well i'd say that i should also add that those bands weren't stars yet they were all at club level there was this <clears throat> like today there's this sort of thing where a rock star is a, above everybody but these people weren't they were at the same level and they were young, of course. And they were very young. And, and that's one of the things I get the most reaction from 
the book as well as the people go, I didn't, I didn't know these people were so young when they did all their best music. It's like, yeah, well, because I found pictures from 65 and 66 when they were at their best. And, and we're speaking of the key artists here, uh, the birds who popularized the Bob Dylan song. Uh, I mean, Dylan had two hit records uh, under the aegis of uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Blowing in the Wind and Don't Think Twice. But as Dylan himself said, he says, you know, you could put all these topical songs on a Folkways album, but who hears them? And that's one of the reasons why he collaborated with the Birds. Shortly afterward, uh, you had Frank Zappa, his group, the Mothers of Invention, uh, who was a very biting social commentary person, but also had a great sense of humor, and Christopher would appreciate this, a fantastic guitar player as well. Uh, well there was the Doors, of course, who used this sort of uh, beat poetry thing in Venice and expanded that into sort of a garage band kind of scene. Uh, there was also Love. And uh, no bass player. And no bass player, yeah. Well, you know, Ray Manzurek had a really good left hand for bass yeah. on, on, on the keyboard. And, and Robbie uh, held down the, the lower end, too, on guitar. Sure. And Love, of course, uh, was this band, uh, was an interracial band led by a guy named Arthur Lee. Um, and uh, there was, you know, a, a white guy in the group, uh, Brian McLean, who was sort of his foil. And so their music was extremely diverse. Arthur had uh, played a lot of shows in East Los Angeles, and so he was on the Chicano rock and roll scene. He started out, of course, in the black music scene, and then he was a folk rocker and ultimately a psychedelic rocker, so his band was probably the most diverse of all of these groups. It's about as eclectic as it gets. Yeah, you know. And then he had Captain Beefheart in his magic band, which is another iconic cult group in a way. Um, the Electric Prunes and the Standells and uh, the Leaves, who had Hey Joe. These, what do we call 60s garage punk bands today. Oh, yeah. All these groups um, came to sort of notoriety. These, what you call obscure groups or small groups, they came to notoriety after punk rock first broke in the late 70s. Um, more people got interested in stuff like rockabilly and in stuff like mod, and then the next thing was the garage rock movement, you know, um, which we still have with us today. They, they've called it alternative or coined it alternative, but ultimately, you know, garage rock bands were uh, of any place in the world. Uh, Los Angeles had more of those, and so that's why there was a lot of bands that you didn't know the names of, but that's one of the most important things. It's all uh, under the banner of Nuggets, I guess you could say. There's a big box set now called Nuggets, sure. but... Uh, if you count all the bands on the Nuggets compilation, you find that the large percentage of them are from Los Angeles. Right, right. During this period of 1965 and 1966, which I've covered in my book. And and they do still get played. We should say that they, there's been renewed interest with the with the whole Little Steven, you know, garage uh, channel now now on uh, Sirius. But he had a syndicated show for a number of years. And yeah, he's really tapped into that. As a matter of fact, it's one of the. You know, he was started off in Bruce Springsteen's group, but then he has done his own radio show, and and then of course he's got the 24-hour Sidious Channel line. So you know, yeah, there's there's a large group of people internationally who um, really flock to this particular style that's called 60s garage punk. Well, it is just it's pure rock and roll. It's high energy. It, it has an innocence uh, in in its in its lack of innocence, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's very unselfconscious. And, and short songs, but also, you know, really angry lyrics, much like punk rock. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, you know you, you've got a group like The Leaves uh, singing, too many people trying to change me. The last thing I'll ever do is to be a man like you, is to, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, <laughs> they're just 
pissed off. And, and it the seeds, like I mean, my lyrics. God, pushing too hard. Right, the seeds pushing too hard was one of the was one of the classics of punk rock. That's one of the angriest uh, top forty songs, you know. But that, it does tell you something different about that era, though. You know, all those bands had at least one top forty hit. I mean, imagine that these days. It just shows you how different the media and radio, in particular, is. You know, it's so much more fragmented. Top, you know, top forty is 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 often used as a derogatory term these days. But the reality was is. You know the original top forty, and man, I was I was listening to you know KHJ in the '60s. I was born in '58 and really got into music pretty early, five six years old. I was listening to the radio, and uh, you know I really vividly remember, you know the these songs that you, that you were mentioning. You know they were hits, even though the bands were were you know pretty much unknown and and uh, may have only had one. But hey, at least they had that one. That would never happen these days. I think the main thing is, uh, well, the subtitle of the book is uh, Rock and Roll's Last Stand in Hollywood. And even back during the 1950s, this thing that we call rock and roll, before it became rock, right, was always primarily on independent labels. If you trace Little Richard, he was on specialty. Chuck Berry was on chess and so on, you know. And this was still the order of the day through to the 1966 period. When Monterey Pop happened, this was with the consolidation of what we now call corporate rock. After Monterey Pop, the next thing that happens is Woodstock. We keep on seeing these larger and larger music business interests closing in on things, and then less music is being pushed out there. Whereas in 19, let's say rock and roll, popular-wise, might have started with Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley in 1955. And then up to 1966, you know, it's the same independent labels all the way through. Suddenly, it's all major labels and less artists. Well, I hate to cut you off, actually. This, is, uh, this has been quite fascinating. I'm, I'm learning even as, even as we speak. I know interest in the chat room is very high. People are, are digging you, and the, I know everybody's uh, interested in your book. We've got a couple people mentioned that they want to run out and get it just to finish this story that you're telling. So <laughs> it's all in thank there. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's always too short. I mean, all all three people um, tonight, uh, you know, and, uh, I mean, just in the music angle with with you and Christopher. I mean, really, it, it, it's uh, it's really great stuff, and we uh, we need to have you come back. Hope you'll hope you will. Oh, I'd be love to do it. You know, focus on on some other aspects of it. But yeah, it's a, a once again, it's a terrific book. I'm really excited about these. Uh, this is the first time I've really looked at them when it, when I got the two, your your guys two, uh, Jawbone. looks like Jawbone's really doing a terrific job. We did re- reproduction of the photographs was so fantastic. With his yeah, and just the layout and uh, the fact that it's it's using you know better quality paper and they're they're oversized books. I mean it's, it's really really doing it right and. Uh, uh, so I certainly congratulate you on yours. That's a I, I'm I'm going to go through it. Uh, as I always say, I'm typically you know behind. I, I just recently got the book and I did look through it, but I'm I'm certainly going to read it very carefully because this is, I mean, it's right in my wheelhouse of interest, uh, which which I hope came through. You know. Yeah, uh, and and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of discovery to be had within in the context of the book. It's probably a fresh look look at. Uh, what happened in rock and roll during the middle 60s prior to the more famous period of the late 60s. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, just 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 a cursory look uh when I, when I hit the uh Chicano section, I mean, I saw the names that I knew, but also a bunch I didn't know. 
<laughs> so I mean that that's saying something right there because that that's something I thought I knew a fair amount about. And you in those days, it was all about integration. You know, that was a big important part of things. Well, thank you again, and uh, thank you to E.A. Vanderveer, to Christopher Fjord, and also to Dominic Priori. Uh, please visit the show page at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio to find links to all of their books. E.A. Vanderveer's Facebook, The Missing Manual, uh, Christopher Hjort's Strange Brew, and Dominic Priori's Riot on Sunset Strip, Rock and Roll's Last Stand in Hollywood. This has been BC Radio Live. We do broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. So be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room or watch the video feed. If you miss the live broadcast, however, audio archives are available online of this and every show. Or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Until next week, aloha.